this week's ACCP Emergency Medicine PRN Journal Club presentation. I'm your host, Christian Kroll, an emergency medicine and ICU pharmacist at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. To view this recorded presentation, head to our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash at ACCP EMED PRN. And for PRN members, slides can be found under the business document section on the ACCP Emergency Medicine PRN website. She is one of the PGY2 critical care pharmacy residents at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. She'll be presenting on early restrictive or liberal fluid management for sepsis-induced hypotension or the CLOVERS trial. Well, thank you, Kyle, for that introduction. And like he said, my name is Lauren Hetzler. I am the PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. And I will be sticking with the theme of fluids today and presenting the CLOVERS trial titled Early Restrictive or Liberal Fluid Management for Sepsis-Induced Hypotension. And my learning objectives for today's presentation are to review guidelines and pertinent literature regarding fluid and vasopressor management and septic shock, and then to analyze the methods, results, and key takeaways of the CLOVERS trial. I wanted to start with just a little review of fluids and vasopressors and their utility in septic shock. So they are both used to increase perfusion, for these patients who are experiencing septic shock but work in a bit of a different way. So fluids increase our intravascular volume, thus increasing our preload and cardiac output to increase our mean arterial pressure or MAP and then perfusion. However, there are some adverse effects associated with fluids such as dilutional coagulopathies and fluid overload. And then we have vasopressors which work through vasoconstriction to constrict our vessels and increase our systemic vascular resistance and thus perfusion, as well as increasing cardiac output to also increase perfusion. However, these are also associated with their fair share of adverse effects, such as tissue ischemia and arrhythmias. And so we know that the Surviving Sepsis Campaign guidelines recommend at least 30 mils per kilogram of IV crystalloid fluid and then norepinephrine as the first line vasopressor agent. But what we don't have as much information on is how much fluid to be giving after that initial resuscitation and then when to start vasopressors. And there really is a limited amount of literature, especially prospective in nature, looking at a restrictive fluid approach in patients with septic shock. One of those trials was published by Andrews and colleagues in 2017 in JAMA. And this was a randomized controlled trial looking at adults with sepsis and hypotension at a single center in Zambia. There's 212 patients that were randomized to either a sepsis protocol group or just standard of care. And patients in the sepsis protocol group received more fluid and vasopressors, and they actually experienced higher in-hospital mortality than this the standard of care. However, there were limitations to this trial, including limited generalizability due to such a different um, geographical location with different resources to our practice here in the U.S. And then a meta-analysis was published in 2020 by Mayhoff and colleagues, including 637 patients and nine randomized controlled trials investigating IV fluid volume in adult patients with sepsis. And they did not find a difference in all-cause mortality between higher versus lower fluid volumes, and also didn't find a difference in serious adverse effects. So at this point, 
still kind of unknown about the restrictive versus liberal fluid strategy. And then along came the classic trial, which was the largest prospective trial that we have to date, included 1,554 patients and compared a restrictive versus a standard fluid resuscitation strategy in patients with septic shock in the ICU. Would like to point out that only 39% of patients came through the ED on their way to the ICU and all patients were in the ICU when they were randomized. Just noting that this was not a trial of patients in the ED with that initial community onset sepsis, like oftentimes we're used to seeing in our ED practice. Between the restrictive and standard fluid resuscitation approach did not see any difference in mortality at day 90. And they also didn't see a difference in serious adverse effects. I thought some strengths of this trial were the large size. Like I pointed out, this was the largest prospective trial that we had, as well as the fact that it took place in um, multiple centers in Europe, which was maybe a little bit more applicable to our practice. However, did have some limitations, such as the fact that the two different groups, restrictive versus standard, didn't receive that much different of amount of fluid. Out at five days, there was only about a two liter difference between groups. But I think there were still some questions following this trial, one being in that ED population, what should we do for these people and comparing the restrictive and standard fluid resuscitation strategy? And then what should we do with vasopressors? Do those have a role early on? That brings us to our trial that we'll be going over today, the CLOVERS trial. This was funded by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and it's through the PEDAL Network, which, as we know, publishes many of our landmark ARDS trials. So the CLOVERS trial was a multi-center, randomized, unblinded superiority trial that was conducted between March 2018 and January 2022. And they hypothesized that a restrictive fluid approach during the first 24-hour resuscitation period for sepsis-induced hypotension would lead to a lower mortality than a liberal fluid approach. Patients in this trial were greater than or equal to 18 years old, and they had suspected or confirmed infection. And this was defined as either administration or planned administration of antibiotics. And they had to have sepsis-induced hypotension, and they defined that as a systolic blood pressure less than 100 or a MAP less than 65 after at least one liter of fluid or requiring a vasopressor. They would have met that definition of sepsis-induced hypotension. And then for exclusion, they excluded patients that had been there for four hours since meeting the inclusion criteria um, or over 24 hours since hospital presentation, and pointing out these that these, again, are patients very early on in their sepsis course. They also excluded patients who had received greater than three liters of fluid resuscitation. And so combining that with our inclusion criteria, they had to get at least one liter of fluid. We know that patients were in that window of one to three liters of fluid received. However, they did not define the patient's weights in this trial, so we can't be sure that that was in that 30 mil per kilogram range necessarily. They also excluded patients who had hypotension due to a different cause, severe volume depletion due to a cause other than sepsis, or if either arm was judged not to be a good treatment for the patient. So I did want to point this out as, you know, the providers there in the ED who are enrolling patients in this trial could elect to not randomize someone in the trial just if they judge them not to be either treatment not to be good for them. So potentially introducing some selection bias there. They also excluded patients with volume overload 
or immediate surgical intervention thought to be needed. So kind of excluding that trauma patient to an extent that may need emergent surgical intervention. And then also excluded patients who were pregnant and who no longer met the inclusion criteria. Other methods of this trial, so once patients met those inclusion exclusion criteria, they were randomized one-to-one to either a restrictive fluid strategy that, as you'll see, focused on early vasopressors or a liberal fluid strategy, and they conducted those treatments for a 24-hour resuscitation period. The initial vasopressors could be administered through either a central or peripheral catheter, and then at any point, the clinical team could override the protocol did they feel that a different treatment option would be best for the patient. So then looking at our two different arms of the trial, the first arm or the restrictive fluid approach, which again is prioritizing vasopressors, patients in this arm, if they, after that initial fluid bolus of their one to three liters that they got, if their MAP then fell below 65 or their systolic blood pressure below 90, despite those initial fluids, then they entered the study treatment, which was norepinephrine, to achieve a MAP of greater than or equal to 65, and then a second vasopressor if needed. I will say that the trial just recommended using norepinephrine first line, and the second vasopressor that they recommended was actually epinephrine, which I thought was interesting as we know the guidelines recommend using vasopressin as a second line. Vasopressor in septic shock. In the protocol in this arm, you were supposed to continue to uptitrate norepinephrine and reassess as needed to maintain those MAP and systolic goals, but you were supposed to give rescue fluids, which was a 500 mil bolus, if the patient met any of this criteria, being severe hypotension, a systolic under 70 or MAP under 50, refractory hypotension, being a systolic under 90 or MAP under 65, with a norepinephrine dose of 20 mics per minute or equivalent of other vasopressors. For my weight-based institutions out there, 20 mics per minute would be 0.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute for a 100 kilo patient or 0.28 for a 70 kilo patient. You were also supposed to give rescue fluids if the lactate level was over four and increasing after two hours of therapy or if they experienced tachycardia over 130 for over 15 minutes or if you believed they had extreme hypovolemia. And then on the other treatment arm, the liberal fluid approach, which prioritized fluids, again, patients got that initial resuscitation um, before the randomization of the one to three liters. And then in this arm, if they met any of these criteria of MAP under 65 or systolic under 90, lactate over four and increasing, if their urine output dropped below 30 mils per hour, if their heart rate went above 110, or if they were requiring vasopressors to maintain their MAPs, these patients should receive a 500 mil bolus. And again, just kind of follow that cycle of reassessing after that 500 mil bolus. And then criteria in this arm for rescue vasopressors was severe hypotension or systolic under 70, MAP under 50. If their lactate was over four and increasing after two hours of therapy, if they had clinical manifestations of fluid overload, or if they had received five liters of fluid, um, five liters was sort of the maximum they set. And then looking at their outcomes, their primary outcome was death from any cause before discharge home by day 90, which aligns with what the classic trial looked at before them of that mortality out at day 90. They included a variety of secondary outcomes, such as days free from mechanical ventilation, renal replacement therapy, days free from vasopressors, 
and then days out of the ICU and out of the hospital, and they assessed those at day 28. And then for their safety outcomes, they looked at a lot of the outcomes that I would be curious in for a trial looking at fluids and vasopressors, such as initiation of mechanical ventilation, sort of extrapolating that of maybe if patients receive too much fluid, they were experiencing pulmonary edema and may need to be ventilated, new arrhythmias, which we know is a side effect of vasopressors, and then catheter complications, which I think is particularly important in this trial as they were able to receive many of their vasopressors peripherally. For their statistical plan, they sought to detect an absolute difference between the two groups of 4.5%, assuming that the mortality rate would be 15% in the liberal group and 105 in the restrictive group. I thought these mortality rates seemed a bit low compared to what I typically see in contemporary septic shock trials of more 20%. And the trial did not describe where they got, what studies they used to base these numbers off of in terms of mortality or the absolute difference between the groups. And to meet power of 90%, they described that they would need 2,320 patients. And then looking at the actual patients that they enrolled in the trial, so patients were around 60 years old and fairly well-balanced between males and females. There were a fairly low number of patients who had either heart failure or ESRD as comorbidities, but I think this makes sense based on some of their exclusion criteria of excluding patients with other causes of hypotension or volume overload, as we know these two groups of patients um, are particularly susceptible to that. Their median baseline SOFA score was about 3.5 in each group. And this correlates to a mortality of 10 to 15%, actually, which is what they predicted in their statistical analysis. But overall, again, fairly low um, compared to maybe what we typically see in septic shock trials. Their systolic blood pressure randomization was 93 in both groups. So just barely in that window of systolic under 100 that you had to meet to meet their hypotension criteria. And then again, pointing out that this trial did take place primarily in the emergency department. So over 90% of patients in both groups were located in the ED when they were randomized. The primary sources of infection that patients were experiencing in this trial were pneumonia or urinary tract infections. Although 30% of patients in each group did have an unknown or other source of infection. Looking at their pre-randomization vasopressor use, you see that close to 20% of patients in either group were on vasopressors at that randomization point, and then only about 7% of patients in each group were mechanically ventilated pre-randomization. And finally, looking at their baseline lactate was 2.9 in both groups. And so all of this going to show that overall, my assessment of the patients in this trial was that they weren't as severe in their septic shock as other trials, such as the classic trial. And so just keeping that in mind when we look at the results of this trial. Looking at the interventions that actually took place in this trial, so patients in both groups received just about two liters um, prior to randomization, which again fits in that one to three leader window that meets the inclusion and exclusion criteria of this trial. For their fluid volume actually administered during the intervention period, this is where you start to see those differences that the protocols outline. So over the first six hours in the restrictive group, patients got 500 mils of fluid 
compared to 2.3 liters in the liberal group. And that difference in the amount of fluid received was maintained through the whole 24-hour period. But that first six-hour chunk of time is really where you see those main differences in the amount of fluid received. And then looking at the vasopressors administered to either group, you can see that significantly more patients in the restrictive group that prioritized vasopressors did receive vasopressors. So about 60% compared to 37% in the liberal group. They also received vasopressors quicker and for a longer duration than in the liberal group that prioritized fluid. So all this going to say they did successfully create two different groups of a restrictive fluid approach and a liberal fluid approach. But again, I would like to point out that even in the restrictive group that prioritized vasopressors, only 60% of patients even received a vasopressor, which again, I think just goes to show maybe the low level of severity of the septic shock of patients in this trial. And then looking at their results for their primary outcome of death before discharge home by day 90, they did not see a significant difference in 90-day mortality between groups, 14% in the restrictive group compared to 14.9% in the liberal fluid group. I will point out that the confidence interval of negative 4.4 to positive 2.6 is fairly wide. And also looking at the number of patients that they ended up enrolling, about 1,600, they did not meet their pre-specified power number of 2,300. For their secondary outcomes, they also did not find any differences in days free from any of these mechanical ventilation, renal replacement therapy. I would like to point out the days free from vasopressor use at 28 days, of which again, they did not see a significant difference. However, I just told you that patients in that first 24-hour period got between 5 to 10 hours of vasopressors, depending on what group they were in. This would suggest that at some point, patients went back on vasopressors for close to six days, um, but they didn't further discuss this. So I thought that was particularly interesting that they seemingly went on vasopressors for a lot longer than just that initial period where they didn't seem as severe. And then looking at their safety outcomes, they did not see a difference in any of these either. So initiation of mechanical ventilation at 28 days was similar between groups as well as new arrhythmias, which you know we may have expected to be different in a group that was prioritizing vasopressors. I will point out here that they didn't describe the peak doses reached. So in their methods, they described that kind of the max norepinephrine dose that they would tolerate before adding fluids was 20. However, they did not describe if they actually reached that dose, how many vasopressors patients were getting which I think would be useful to help us apply this information and gauge how sick these patients really were. They didn't see a significant difference in severe adverse effects, although I will point out that in their supplementary appendix, they described that three patients in the liberal group experienced volume overload leading to pulmonary edema, and zero patients in the restrictive group experienced that, which was significant in that table. And then there was a difference in the amount of patients admitted to the ICU for the duration of the protocol. So more patients in the restrictive group that prioritized vasopressors were admitted to the ICU compared to the liberal group. My interpretation is that may, that may be because lots of hospitals have a policy that you have to be admitted to the ICU when you're receiving IV vasopressors. And so that could potentially explain why more patients were admitted to the ICU in this group. But that also may explain you know, maybe patients in this group got higher level of care than patients in the liberal group, which could have potentially created differences in the patients.
And when looking at their pre-specified subgroup analysis for the primary outcome, they did not find any group of patients that was found to be associated with better outcomes in terms of one strategy versus another. This is the second slide of that. And I will point out the one that stuck out to me was patients with ESRD. Like I told you, not that many patients were enrolled in this trial with ESRD, but despite the very large confidence interval, this line is close to not crossing the zero line. And again, since the trial didn't meet power, this potentially could have been a significant difference if the trial had met power. But that was really the only group that I thought stuck out as potentially suggesting a difference favoring the restrictive fluid strategy. So the author's conclusions for this trial were that a restrictive fluid strategy did not result in reduced mortality compared to a liberal fluid strategy in patients with sepsis-induced hypotension refractory to initial fluid resuscitation. Some limitations that the authors brought up were that the results may not be generalizable to the extremes of volume overload or volume depletion since those patients were excluded from this trial. They also pointed out that the trial didn't incorporate fluid responsiveness testing to guide therapy, such as bedside echoes or the cheetah test to help us understand where the patients are at on their Frank Starling curve. They also pointed out that the unblinded nature of the trial may have introduced bias and bias in reporting of adverse effects. And also mentioned that a longer treatment duration, more than that 24-hour approach or enrollment of a population of higher severity, like I've pointed out, may have yielded different results, although I don't think we have suggestions from this trial of what that may have yielded. Some other strengths and limitations that I noted when going through this trial was that I appreciated the clear division between the intervention groups that they created. We definitely did see a restrictive group that received less fluids and more vasopressors compared to the liberal group. They had a high adherence to their study protocol. There was over a 95% adherence in either group, which I thought was a strength. I also appreciated that this was more applicable to the ED population than like the classic trial we looked at before, since randomization primarily did take place in that ED space, as well as being very early in their resuscitation course. Some other limitations that I've mentioned as we've worked through this trial were a fairly low severity of septic shock, not necessarily a huge limitation, but just making sure that we understand that's really who was included in this trial. And so it may not be applicable to those patients that are at a much more severe level of septic shock. I also pointed out that they use epinephrine as their second line vasopressor, or at least recommended that. But again, we don't have the information on how many people actually proceeded to needing a second line vasopressor, what doses they were receiving, um, which I think would have been helpful to understand. And then they also did not include a weight-based fluid volume, which we know is very important and mentioned in the guidelines. And so that would have helped us understood their resuscitation in this trial. So overall, my takeaways from this trial and application are that in general, I don't think this really pointed us one way or another in which fluids or vasopressors should be used first or prioritized. I do think that we can continue to assess early fluids versus early vasopressors in a more severe population, like I pointed out, because I think now we can say in this lesser severe population, we really don't see that big of a difference, but potentially in a more severe population, we would see a difference. And then also to continue to assess in different subgroups and phenotypes of sepsis, 
patients in those types of groups would be more likely to benefit from one approach than another. But unfortunately, like I said, in the subgroup analysis of this trial, we didn't get a whole lot of suggestions of which subgroups would be more likely to benefit. So I do think there is still some questions there that could be investigated, though. And then overall, my recommendation would be to continue to personalize resuscitation approach in these septic shock patients using patient-specific characteristics. Fluid responsiveness testing, I think, is something that could be incorporated more and potentially even in future trials of using those bedside echoes or other strategies to assess patients' fluid responsiveness and then putting them into a category or protocol. And then the perceived risk of adverse effects in these patients. So if you perceive your patient to be at a high risk of volume overload and pulmonary edema, using more of that restrictive approach or early vasopressors. If you have enjoyed this presentation content and would like to hear more, subscribe via your favorite podcasting app. Additionally, make sure to check out our YouTube page for all recorded presentations. Thank you for listening to this week's ACCP Emergency Medicine Journal Club presentation. Join us weekly for review and discussion of new journal articles in emergency medicine. This podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional health care services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And the use of the contents and materials in the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users or patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. The user or patient should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guest. It should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Emergency Medicine PRN.